Hey, Bible readers, I'm Tara Lee Cobble, and I'm your host for the Bible Recap. We've made it 100 days. Congratulations. I hope you're doing something to celebrate this milestone. All right, let's dive into today's reading. Have you ever heard of a Rube Goldberg machine? Let me describe one and see if this rings a bell. Imagine dominoes falling over row by row until they hit a golf ball, knocking it into a paper cup, which is attached to a pulley system that drops the cup down and tips it over and spills the golf ball, and you get the picture. All the things in a Rube Goldberg machine have to line up perfectly to accomplish each detail so that the next detail connects and the end goes off as planned. It's very complicated. And that's why God is the best at Rube Goldberg machines. We see that in today's reading. Today, God lets Samuel know that he's the one in charge of appointing Israel's first king, and he gives him a heads up that the man he has in mind is on his way to meet him. God arranged the circumstances of their meeting perfectly. It involves getting some donkeys lost, putting an idea in the servant's head and a silver coin in his pocket, stationing some girls at the well at what was probably an unusual time of day to go to the well, and having it all line up not only with the arrival of Samuel back in town, but also with the feast and the timing God gave Samuel for when the new king would arrive. Saul is a Benjamite, the tribe that was almost wiped out completely not long ago. Remember how only 600 men survived? And those survivors weren't viewed too highly among Israel because they caused Israel's first civil war. So apart from his appearance, Saul is an unlikely candidate to be king of Israel. But his appearance is the first thing noted about him in Scripture. As for his height, Jewish historians say the average Israelite male in those days was around 5'6". So if Saul was a head taller than everyone, that would make him about 6'3". So he was tall and handsome and probably dark because this is the Middle East after all. When he shows up on the scene, God tells Samuel, this is him. So Samuel invites him to the feast and gives him the most desirable piece of meat, which was reserved for the priest. Then he invites Samuel to sleep on the roof, which was the most desirable sleeping spot because of the breeze. He's also careful to reveal a few details that confirm for Saul that he's a prophet of Yahweh. For instance, he's like, oh, those donkeys you've been looking for, they're home already. Then the next day, as he's walking Saul and his servant out of the city, he pulls Saul aside and casually anoints him in the street by pouring oil on his head. And he basically says, you're the prince of Israel now, and God has a plan for you to rescue his people. In case you don't believe me, let me tell you three separate things that are about to happen on your way home, in case you might be tempted to write off the first two as a coincidence. Then Samuel tells Saul to go to Gilgal and wait for him for seven days, and then he'll give him some instructions on what to do next. Put a pin in this thought. We'll be coming back to it tomorrow, and it's important. All of Samuel's prophecies came true on Saul's trip home that day, including the prophecy that God the Spirit would rush upon him and that Saul himself would prophesy as well. In the Old Testament, when God the Spirit works this way, it's always to empower someone for a specific task or calling. So God is with Saul to enable him to accomplish this task. And there was a noticeable change to those who knew him before him that could only be attributed to God's presence in his life. Not long after that, Samuel has everyone gather at Mizpah, which is the general meeting place when all the tribes are called together for a big announcement. Even though he's already privately anointed Saul, Samuel knows it'll be helpful for the people to see that this is God's choice, not just Samuel's, especially given that Saul is a Benjamite. So Samuel proceeds with the typical lot casting, and of course, Saul is drawn, but they can't find him. Fortunately, Samuel has a direct line to God, who points out that Saul is hiding over by the luggage carousel. 
This presents some problems right off the bat. Their new king, Saul, is fearful and reluctant. He's not off to a great start. But when Samuel brings him out to the people, most, but not all, of them approve of the choice. Then Samuel writes down all the details of kingship for him before he goes back home. Between 10.27 and 11.1, there's a passage that appears in some ancient versions of this text, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, but not in the primary text most translators use, so it may or may not appear in the version you read today. In case it didn't and you find it helpful, here's a summary of what it says. Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had been oppressing two of the Transjordan tribes, Gad and Reuben, and had gouged out their right eyes. But 7,000 of them had escaped him and fled north to hide in a part of East Manasseh called Jabesh-Gilead. Okay, now back to 11.1. King Nahash finds the people who are hiding, and they try to make a treaty with him, but he'll only do it if he can gouge out their right eyes too, like he did with their brothers. But they stall for time to try to find someone who will rescue them. Word about all this gets back to Saul, and God the Spirit rushes on him to equip him for what's ahead. He's filled with righteous anger, and he cuts up some oxen and sends the pieces to all the tribes with a message that says they're required to come fight. Over 300,000 people show up. The next day, they attacked and saved their people. Saul has an incredible first victory, and it's really his one shining moment in his whole kingship. He even shows grace to the people who initially opposed his reign when other people volunteered to kill them. Saul wins the people over, and they have a ceremony renewing his kingship. The ceremony is at Gilgal, which is the religious center at this time, so it's possible that this may have been more of a religious coronation, separate from his previous political appointment. Meanwhile, Samuel has retired as a judge, since Saul is Israel's leader now, but he's still active in his role as a prophet. He gives the people an opportunity to point out any errors he has made as a leader, but this seems to be mostly rhetorical because Scripture regards him as honorable and upright, and the people confirm that. Then he reflects on everything that has happened to Israel since Moses and Aaron showed up on the scene. Like all the good leaders before him, he reminds them of all God has done for them, and he implores them to obey God. If they do, things will go well for Israel. If they rebel, things won't. Then he basically says, When you ask for a king, you sinned. If I'm right in saying this, God will make it rain right now, on a clear day when you'd normally be harvesting your crops. And it rains. This puts the fear of God in them. They begged Samuel to pray for them, and he promises to. And he lets them know it's not too late for them. Even though they've sinned, they can still turn to God. He hasn't cast them off. And that's where my God shot came from today. In 1222, Samuel says, It has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. It has? That's unbelievable. I keep being blown away every time I realize how much he actually delights in them, in me, in us. According to God, these people have rejected him as king. After everything he's done for them, they've rejected him. And still, he's so pleased that he chose them. He knew what he was getting into, adopting a bunch of sinners into his family and giving them a seat at his table. He knew they'd spill the food and stain the carpet and steal the wine goblet. But he knows he's sending the Redeemer to pay for all of it soon. He knows every wrong thing you've ever done and ever will do, and still, he's pleased to call you his child. No matter what regrets are in your past, no matter what sins you have yet to commit, Christ has paid the price for all of the sins of God's children, and it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. He's where the joy is. 
There are two things you can do today to help yourself out and two things you can do to help us out. All together, they take about 60 seconds. If you want to help yourself out, subscribe to this podcast and set it to download each day. And if you want to help us out, we'd love for you to give us a rating, preferably five stars, and a quick review. Okay, full disclosure, all four of those things actually help us. So thank you in advance. We appreciate you. I'm so excited about how many of you entered to win the free trip to Israel with Israelux and Hope Media Group. And because of that, we want to offer even more chances for you to win a few other things, especially for those of you who might not be able to go to Israel with us. So we're going to be giving away some bonus things. You could win a copy of my new Israel book, which comes out in April. It's a luxury coffee table book with 256 pages of gorgeous pictures of Israel and 30 devotionals. Or you could win some other TBR book bundles and a few other secrets we're keeping tucked up our sleeves. To enter, text the word book to 67101. That's book 67101. 